Hey there, I'm really excited to share this episode with you guys. This episode is a conversation, a dialogue between myself and Sharon Salzberg. Sharon Salzberg is like a hero of mine. I listen to her lectures and meditations all the time. She is a New York Times bestselling author and a really prominent figure in bringing mindfulness practices to the West from the East. Um, she's a meditation teacher, an expert, author. Her most recent book is titled Real Love. We talk about her meditation practice, what that looks like nowadays after spending a life devoted to meditation. We talk about going from student to teacher. We talk about her several interactions with the Dalai Lama. And we even do a meditation together where she leads me in one that you can follow along with. This was an excellent conversation. I left a lot with it personally. Um, Changed the way I'm thinking about the new album I'm working on. So without further ado, this is Sharon Salzberg on What Does This All Mean? Okay, I am good to go. I I have a question for you to start. Sure. So, I think it was three or four years ago now, a friend of mine, his mother, um, died of cancer. Mm. And she had a trip planned to visit Ramdas. Mm-hmm. And my friend, very lovingly, lovingly, he was supposed to go on the trip with her. And he said, Mike, I still want to go on the trip. Would you come with me? I said, of course, you know, so honored. How could you say no? And so we're kind of like cruising around Maui for a few days. And then like we get to the Ramdas day and we pull up to his house and we come inside and it's me and my buddy. There's three of us, two buddies. Ramdas comes in the room and we talk for I don't know, 40 minutes, and he says a bunch of things I've heard him say before because I've listened to his lectures. Mm-hmm. He's, and then he says, okay, it's, it's time for you guys to go. So we say, okay. And we hug him, kiss him, lock out. And I felt, I walk out of his house, close the door, overcome by emotion. And lo- it's just like, the, only, the best word I have to describe it is high. I felt so high and in uh-huh, love with uh-huh. the world, and I don't know what the heck happened. <laughs> what the heck happened? What Sharon? happened? Is that the question? <laughs> yeah. What happened, Sharon? I think it's exactly as you described. He uh, is full of love, and I think especially these days. Interestingly enough, you know, he had this massive stroke, and and uh, it's not easy. And somehow, after the stroke, he. He metabolized some of that, a lot of that suffering into love, and he's the most loving I think he's ever been. And he just showered you with some love. And the best part of it was that you felt loving toward the world. You know, it wasn't just like absorbing it, but it was transmitting it. It was transmitting through you as well. So that's terrific. Yeah, I, I mean, he said something really simple but profound to me, which was. He said, you walk around all day and you're, you're deciding what to love and what not to love. Mm-hmm. You're deciding what's good and what's bad and what you can give your love to. You're, you're deeming things morally okay and morally wrong. He said, that's too hard. That's exhausting. Just mm-hmm. love everything. It's easy. Whoa. 
Uh-huh. And so I walk, yeah, I walk out that house. I'm like, I'm in love with this dirt and this gate and this car tire. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was really surreal. But I mean, yeah, I can say those words now, but I really felt it then. And and I, it like I rearranged my life after that day because I thought, wow, if that's possible to to give someone else that gift. What else do I have to do than to be able to give that gift to other people? That's terrific. Yeah. Well, it's so cool to talk to you. <laughs> it's really cool to talk oh, to you. Oh, man, oh, man. So I'm a fan. I've listened to many of your meditations. Congratulations huh? well, on the new book. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hey, so I want to ask you about your daily practice. What mm-hmm. does What does that look like these days as someone who's an expert, a, a teacher, what do, what does your daily practice look like? Well, I try to sit uh, every day when I wake up right away before I get like immensely distracted and overcome by something. Okay, can I, so, can I ask like the, de- is it like literally, sorry to nerd on the details. No, no, no it's good. Is it like literally right when you wake up or do you drink a glass of water first, brush your teeth first or is it like first thing? It's close to first thing. It's often before caffeine of any form, you know, so that would come next. But Mm -hmm. I was just like, get up, go to the bathroom, throw some water in my face and sit like that is my preference, you know, when I can do that. So um, and when I sit, uh, it's about half an hour. Sometimes it's a little longer. And it's really sort of an open awareness. I just uh, am paying attention to whatever comes up. I also have a very strong commitment to loving kindness practice, to developing loving kindness and compassion. And I have a resolve that I'm going to try to do that whenever I'm waiting. And I can't, every mode of transportation is waiting. So it's walking down the streets of New York, sitting on an airplane, sitting in a waiting room, you know, uh, whatever it might be. And so silently I'm looking around usually, uh, eyes open and, and, Offering loving kindness. You know, may you be happy. May you be peaceful. And may you be happy. May you be peaceful. And it's a really interesting way of walking through New York yeah. and uh, through life. And and uh, so I do that. And in addition, I have a friend who's a, a Chinese monk and uh, got sent over from China to the States. And he was having sort of culture shock, and things were hard for him. And so he decided that. Uh, he's, he also sits half an hour in the morning, and he has a very rigorous like kung fu practice. But he said that he also decided to take like every like two minute, five minute, ten minute break in the day when he was just like waiting for something or the next thing, and use it to practice. So I thought that is really cool. So I said to him, "Do you have like an app or something where you count it?" And he said, "No, I use the notes section of my iPhone," <laughs> mm. which I thought was really funny, you know. And so. I've started to try to do that too. It's like um, those little two-minute things, or you know, there's five minutes before the next thing happens, or something like that. And I think, okay, I'm going to practice. For those that don't know, what is loving kindness? Okay, loving kindness is its own. Um, well, one level of it is its own meditation technique, and so it's a, a particular way to practice because there's so many, many ways of practicing. And the quality is a quality of connection. It's connecting really deeply with yourself in a caring way, not the usual obsession with everything that's wrong with us. And, mm-hmm. 
you know, just going through that list again and again, but really wishing ourselves well. So it's it's considered a practice of generosity where we're offering, like, may I be happy, may you be happy. Um, it's gift giving in that way. So we're connecting to ourselves, we're connecting to others, and ultimately, the work is to connect with everybody, with with all of life. Can we do it? Yeah, you want to do it? I'd love to. Okay. So if you want to sit comfortably. Should I be, is it my uh-huh. head unsupported? Does that matter? It doesn't matter. However you're comfortable. Can I lay? You can lay down. Okay. I'm good to go. All right. <laughs> okay, just get comfortable. You can close your eyes or not. If you're feeling really sleepy, it's a good idea to keep your eyes open. They can be like a little bit open. You can find a spot to rest your gaze and bring your energy into your body. Take a deep breath. Then let your breath become natural. And find the words or the phrases that are like the gift you would like to give the most to yourself. Like, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free. May I be filled with loving kindness. Just three or four. And start making that offering. You just repeat those phrases again and again with enough space and enough silence that so that it's a rhythm that's pleasing to you. This is like the song of the heart. And you don't have to try to force a special feeling or emotion. The power of the practice is in complete wholehearted presence behind one phrase at a time. When your mind slips off, because it usually does, just gently let go and come back. think of somebody that you really love is there someone who when you think of them you just smile it could be an adult could be a child could be a pet who embodies the force of love for you so if there's someone like that that comes to mind you can bring them here you can get an image of them or say their name to yourself get a feeling for their presence Offer phrases of loving kindness to them. Even if the words aren't perfect, it's fine because they're like the, the vehicle, they're carrying the heart's energy.
someone you know that's struggling, that's having a hard time right now, bring them here. <clears throat> See what happens as you offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. And all beings everywhere, all people, all creatures, all those in existence, near and far, known and unknown, may all beings be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. When you feel ready, you can open your eyes. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. That was a really beautiful interlude. struck by how I'm in the same spot as I was however many minutes ago yeah when we started speaking but it's a different experience now. yeah I feel more calm more relaxed and happier mm-hmm so I have some questions from my audience mm-hmm and they're good questions I think so one is like what is and I've rephrased them a little bit maybe more a bit more concise one is what's our goal with meditation is it to feel calmer happier what's the goal why are we doing it mm -hmm. I do it why do I do it yeah why do you do it I, for me I, I tend to feel more energy mm -hmm. when I'm like throughout the day so, she, so I'll do it twice a day for 20 minutes and mm -hmm. especially the second one when I have that sort of 3 o'clock feeling mm -hmm. it like it's a I have like a second wave in my day um, and I'm, I, it, it helps me look at my life more 
objectively it feels mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. things that I was wrapped up in the emotion of or they seem like big problems 20 minutes later I'm like that wasn't really a problem and actually right. Or, right. or that was totally my fault that thing I was uh-huh. blaming on them you know yeah exactly so there's the, there's those but there's been also in times in my life where I felt like I'm on this path towards something mm-hmm. towards enlightenment or like after the day with Ramdas, like towards being like that to mm-hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so is that what I'm doing? Yeah, I think I think you described it beautifully because I think calm is the um, certainly that's part of it. But sometimes I think it's actually just a small part of it. But it's what people associate with meditation. It's right. like um, what you describe, you know, is is like more like insight really understanding your life really differently and understanding happiness really differently and i think that's really ultimately more what we do so first of all the state we're talking about in meditation is considered to be you know ideally it's a balanced state between calm and energy because we're not just trying to calm down because we might as well take a nap and, right and, and you that know it be easier that was another question i had from someone and yeah he said does does meditation necessitate calmness because sometimes i don't want i wouldn't want to get calmer yeah yeah the um it's all about relationship you know so it's not like everything calms down and you have few thoughts and you have this languorous feeling through your body I and mean, sometimes you can be like crazy restless but you're calm in that you're not adding to it it's exactly like you described you know you're not taking it to heart or you're not blaming yourself mercilessly for something so even though something kind of turbulent is going on you're not making it worse by your reaction mm-hmm. and so it's the different response that's where the calm is even though what you're looking at is maybe a whole bunch of thoughts or anxiety coming up or something like that. Because we do tend to make things worse, actually, an awful lot of the time. You know, we just add uh, many things, future projection, like this is going to last forever, or sense of isolation. I'm the only one who's ever felt like this in all of history. Or, um, <laughs> you know, or blame, like I should have been able to control this. and. You know, sometimes we're blaming ourselves for something no one on earth has ever been able to control. And yet we think we should. What's an example of one of those things? Well, what thought comes up in your mind next, you know? Hmm. Um, I've been thinking about it. Are are the thoughts I have my fault? Am I responsible for the thoughts I have? no, I, I I would probably reframe that and say we're responsible for how we react or how we mm. respond to the thoughts that we have. But uh, it's not a hard test, you know. Like decide you're not going to feel afraid again ever, you know. Or <laughs> like it doesn't work. It's ridiculous, right? Yeah. So yeah. this came up for me like two weeks ago. There, I'm totally in love with this with my partner. Her name's uh-huh. Megan, and. Uh-huh. And I have one of the, my best friends in the whole world, Adam, and they're good friends. They've been good friends since before we were a couple, and they uh-huh. hang out. And it's all, they have a great friendship. And I know there's 0% chance there's any funny business going on. Mm-hmm, like, I know mm-hmm. that in my head, but I have jealous thoughts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I, I want her to be with me right now. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself judging myself for having the jealous thoughts mm-hmm. i'd like like i 
but so then I started asking myself these questions. Like, is it my fault I feel jealous? Or do I just acknowledge that and try to not act on it or relate mm-hmm. to it in a different way? Mm-hmm. Perfect. I mean, I it's not your fault. How can you stop it? You know, one of my early teachers is... Is there a meant- way to stop it? Well, think has anyone ever been able to stop it? I don't no. know. No, I mean one of my early teachers said to me, um, his name was Menindra. He said, because uh, I would freak out over everything coming up in my mind. He said something like, um, "Why are you so upset about this thought that came up in your mind? Did you invite it? Did you say it? You know, three fifteen. I'd like to be filled with jealousy, please. No, <laughs> but." When conditions come together for something to arise, it will arise. And certainly we can change the conditions or we can influence the conditions, but we can't, like, get into absolute control. It's like never again will a jealous thought come up in my mind because it's not, it's not real. It's not realistic. And so, uh, but we're really powerful in that we can relate differently. You know, you can see the jealous thought and watch it come and go and... Uh, be kind to yourself or even laugh at yourself or whatever, you know. Uh, or you can see the jealous thought and, like, grab it. And um, as one of my – another one of my teachers, a Tibetan teacher named Sokin Rinpoche used to say, uh, it's not the thoughts that come up in your mind that's the problem. It's the glue. You know, it's like we glom onto these things and we build a whole reality out of it and we freak out and we suffer and we don't have to. Yeah, I will notice myself sometimes even during my meditations running down this thought train of if someone were to do something wrong to me, what I would say to them. And I play out this whole Mm -hmm. scene of like the words I would use to explain how bad they hurt me and this whole thing and they haven't even hurt me. Mm-hmm. It's like what? It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, like what's going on here, buddy? But yeah, I guess sitting, I'm able to then recognize at times I'm doing that uh-huh. and come back. And I've heard you say before that that's where the power is, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because then in life, because I'm do, because if I'm doing that sitting down, I must be doing that all the time. And if I can catch that in my life, that makes a difference. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, we, we can be so hard on ourselves. It's like even if you're doing what's a very uh, common kind of meditation practice, like just sitting down and feeling your breath, mm-hmm. it's not likely to be like a thousand breaths before your mind wanders. It's usually two, you right. know, or yeah. one, and then you're gone. And that's why I say I put so much emphasis on the next moment because it's like that time's already gone. You know, you were asleep or you were lost in fantasy but then comes that moment when you recover and that's the really significant moment because we just want to practice letting go and starting over and that's that will take us a long way in life you know just that one that one skill and and instead we usually go off in these long trains of judgment and we emerge exhausted you know and we've spent all that time doing that and and it's such a waste when we really want to recover and we want to emphasize the recovery, and so we do. Yeah, that's so powerful. And it's the, it's the number one, I'm so glad you said that, because it's the number one thing I hear people say about meditation, which is, like, I can't do that. And they that's have right. this 
this myth, which is when you meditate, you're supposed to be having no thoughts. That's right. Which, from what I understand, is just not true. That's like correct. Thoughts are. It's not true. The thoughts are part of it, the practice. Yeah. 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 You write the beautiful space of caring, where you where you come into harmony with all your life. Mm. Is that? Is that the totality of what real love is, or is that a description of it? Like, is that a glimmer in the eye of real love? I think it's a glimmer, you know, like, I think whenever we're, I'm sure you experience this, where you're, you're trying to describe these spaces that have no words, you know? <laughs> you think, what am I supposed to say? Um, but I think it's, it's why I keep trying is, is because we're fed so many myths and even lies about what it is. And, um, you know, we feel so incomplete a lot of the time and, and we don't have to really. And one of the real things I was, um, or main things I was challenging uh, in the book Real Love was this idea that love is in the hands of another, you know, and they can give it to us, but they can also take it away from us. And if mm. they were to take it away from us, we'd be left with nothing. We'd be really bereft and in contrast to that i was trying to reframe love as a capacity or an ability we each have within ourselves it's ours it's inside us and other people certainly might awaken it or enliven it or threaten it but it's it's ours and so uh you know i used to get this image almost like the ups person was standing at my doorstep and looking down at the package of love in his hand and and saying eh, wrong address and going the other way and say wait a minute you know like come back i have nothing now uh, but we're taught it's like that but it's not really like that and so we can cultivate that ability whether we're in a relationship or not or uh you know we cultivate that ability in in the way we look at ourselves the way we look at another any kind of relationship you know friend partner whatever and we can actually cultivate that ability to connect and care uh in a full-on way just being alive with life itself well so you so if i'm hearing you correctly that feeling that that one might assume could only come from finding quote the one end mm -hmm. quote could be found anywhere at any time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like from I, the microphone I'm looking into. It could or, be. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. Or, or just the, the sense of being alive. Yeah, that's right. I, I really do Go believe ahead. that. I do too. What are the upper limits? Do we know the upper limits of that? Like, is it possible for a human to walk around and just be in that all the time? I mean, like, the... You've, it sounds like you've studied with magical beings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are, are those people like that? Are you like that? I'm not like that. Let me hasten <laughs> to say that right away. I'm not like that. And this is my 10th book, and a lot of them are on love, but I'm not like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do believe it's possible. Um, I think that's why uh, well, you got sort of a, a taste of it. I mean, I don't think. Ramdas is necessarily like that all the time, right. but he would certainly go to the mat and say his guru was, you know. Yeah. And it's because his guru was that he saw the power of love, and it's because you had that experience that you were transmitting it to others. You didn't just like go home to your hotel and say, "Wow, I feel great," you know. Like, I hope no one bothers no, me. It, I can't like, stand people. It you rocked know? my life, Sharon. 
I yeah. Like, so I like went after that happened. I went back to his book. Remember, be heart, be here now. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. in the end, there's that like the cookbook for a holy life. Mm-hmm. And I start doing all everything it said. Mm-hmm. Like I was sleeping mm-hmm. on the floor. I was like eating differently. Like whatever. I just wanted to be like that. <laughs> whatever it's I fabulous. encountered that day. But then I wonder, like, is that, I don't know, is is there this, like, path you have to go through? You have to study a certain amount of, like, how does that happen? And were any of your teachers like that? Sleeping on the floor? <laughs> Not sleeping on the floor, but omitting that, like, in that Yeah, space. yeah, no, my teachers definitely were like that. I mean, uh-huh. that's why they were my teachers. And, right. But, no, I don't think that, you know, everyone has to sleep on the floor or, or you know, spit cardamom pods into the chai, whatever it was in that cookbook. <laughs> I think that was in the cookbook. Yeah, there was um, some there was some peculiarities in there. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but it's something about stepping out of what is ordinary, maybe, or what. Basically, the problem with the ordinary is that we stop paying attention. You know, it's like yeah, it's my fiftieth cup of this kind of tea. I'm not even going to taste it anymore. Or I've written on this subway, you know, a thousand times. I'm not going to even realize where I am anymore. You know, and so sometimes we have to kind of change set just to wake up and say, oh, where am I, you know? What's going on here? And, um, you know, that's why all those practices exist is, is to help us see anew uh, and see more completely what our experience is. And then, you know, you don't have to sleep on the floor and you don't have to sleep on the floor forever, even if you choose to do it for a while. But um, it's interesting just to to stretch, you know, to, to get out of your comfort zone a little bit. And the teachers are an amazing gift when one has one, you know, and I don't think all is lost if you don't have one, but in addition to kind of helping you maybe directly with your practice, they can be models of, of a kind of love and acceptance that it really means a lot to us. They mean a lot to the student, you mean? Yeah, like I had this one teacher, this woman named Deepama, who I would say was one of the most loving people I'd ever met in the simplest, um, kind of most maternal way. You know, she had tremendous tragedies in her life and a lot of suffering, but it didn't make her self-preoccupied or mm-hmm. or bitter. You know, she really was interested in everybody and she wanted everyone to be happy and comfortable. And um, she was just hugely loving and uh you know, she was an important person for me because I, I saw what she'd been through. You know, she didn't have that easy a life. And, uh, and and she somehow dealt with all of that and came out that way. Or I hear those stories that Ramdas tells about Neem Kroli Baba, about right. Maharaji. And, and uh, you know, it, it's always been really fascinating to me because... Um, you know, the people, and, and so many of them are really close friends, and who went off and and met Maharaji, met Neem Kroli Baba. Nobody ever seems to say, well, that was a stupid time in my life. You know, I was, <laughs> you know, I got overcome by some hypnotic weirdo, you know. And like, every single one of them says, that was the most amazing time of my life, and he taught me what love is, and, you know, he showed me how you can be unconditionally loving. I think, wow, that's so interesting. Right. It, it really is. Is that a goal of yours? To be unconditionally loving? All or the time? Yeah, I'd say 
it is. I mean, I don't feel it in a self-punishing way, like, damn it, you know, like I blew it again. <laughs> you know, but I do believe it's possible, and I think that uh, the more free I get, I think the closer I'll get to that. And do you feel like you're the closest you've ever been now? Yeah, definitely. So it's always a moving forward for you. Yeah. And does it feel attainable? <laughs> like it's something... <laughs> Say it again? I move back sometimes, too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but even the moving back is like part of the meta yeah. moving forward, yeah. right? Yeah. So, is but does it feel attainable too? Like that's something you can get to this life? Uh, possibly. Um, you know, I mean, I, I sort of don't think of it so much as um, that linear anymore. Quite, you know, I just I think it's attainable. I I do think. Uh, possibly in this life, or certainly as long as I have a feeling I'm learning and moving toward it, then whatever, you know. Right, there's nothing else to do. Yeah. That's it. So when did when did you move from being a student to being a student and a teacher? And uh, how did you have the courage to do that? Was it yeah. at first? It was very scary. Uh, I was 21. And thank God you did, by the way. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I actually I had gone to India when I was 18, and I was uh, I came back and finished college, and I went back to India. And I, uh, when I was 21, uh, I was leaving India for what I was convinced was a very brief period back home in the U.S. before I went and lived the rest of my life in India. And I went to Calcutta to see that woman teacher, Deepama. It's a nickname. It means Deepa's mother. And um, I said to her that I was going back to the States. And and it was then that she told me that I, when I came back, I should be teaching, that I would be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. <laughs> That's how I became a teacher. Uh, was because she told me to teach, and I kept saying, I can't do that. I'm not capable, kind of. And um, she said two things that were really important for me. I'd had a very uh, difficult and traumatic childhood, like many people do. And uh, what she said to me in that moment was she said, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And then she said to me, you can do anything you want to do. It's your thinking you can't do it that's going to stop you. And I left her room and walked down these four flights of stairs thinking, no, I won't. I'm not going to do that. And I came back to the States, and things just kept unfolding. And uh, I was hanging out with Joseph Goldstein, whom I'd met in India, and Jack Cornfield, who I met for the first time in the States. And um, we started getting invitations to teach and We'd go somewhere to teach, and then at the end of that retreat, we never knew if there'd be another invitation until the next letter came, and it slowly started evolving. And one day I realized, oh, she was right, you know? <laughs> like, I am teaching. Wow. This is my life. I'm not going back to India to live. You know, I've gone back, but I certainly haven't gone back to live. How do you decide? Is it, it seems like there's a lot of facets to your teaching, right? You may mm-hmm. need a retreat. Um, you may write a book. How do you decide when to do what? And why? Yeah, unfortunately, I usually do more than one at a time. Right. So what? Um, like, what's that look like for Sharon Salt? I mean, it's interesting to me because 
Um, I'm a recording artist, so like when yeah. I tour, I kind of like I kind of have an idea of what Bruno Mars's life is like, yeah. or like you know, like I kind of. But your life, I see this this. I'll receive a teaching from you, like listen to a guided meditation, for example. Mm -hmm. So I get that little sliver, but that's kind of like when an uh, an audience member like sees my show. And they just forget about it. And they don't realize, like, I'm doing that every night in another That's city. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. Like, what does that yeah. look like for you? Are you on the road a lot? How's it? What's I am. Um, well, I have a house in Barry, Massachusetts, and a retreat center, the Insight Meditation Society. I have an apartment in New York City, which is where I am right now, this moment. Um, so I teach a lot of classes and, uh, you know, workshops and things here. Um, and I travel a lot, and uh, it's very hard uh, to write and travel, but somehow I do. I agree. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard. I agree. And so, so what I'd like yeah, to do is just stay put and write for a while, which probably I will at some point. And for you, like, how often do you write a book? Like, is that a – and how do you know when you're going to write a book? Um – well, I mean, sometimes it, it's really the other way around. Somebody asks me to write a book. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think am I – sometimes I'm compelled to write a book. Like I wrote a book called Faith, which I like – I had to write it. And uh, it, it was just like I had to do it. And I went through, you know, different publishers or different um, situations around it. But I had to do it. And uh, other times – why? Why? Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> that's a very good question. Uh, my first book was called Loving Kindness, and it's about loving kindness meditation, like we did together a little bit. And somebody asked me, what would it be like? Uh, they said to me, what's it like when like, your whole life's work is sort of in your first book, and you feel like you want to write another one? And I said, well, you just have to go deeper. So... I thought, okay, what's really deeper for me? And I realized it was this question of faith. And it's not faith in the conventional sense of the word, of like belief system or dogma or something like that. It's really like one of those times we can offer our heart to something, you know, when we really go forward. And I think about, you know, me at 18 in college and deciding to go to India and study meditation. It's like I'd never even been to California, you know, when I went to India, <laughs> you know, like, what is it that lets us say, I'm going to give it a shot, I'm going to try. And so I was fascinated by the topic, and it really turned out to be my faith journey. And so I probably, it was just time for me, you know, to to put all that together and put it out there. And so um, I persevered, and you know, and I got that done. And a lot of the books I've written have been the publisher saying, we'd really like to see a book on, on this topic. What do you think? And, you know, then I go inside and I think, well, do I really have something I feel I can say that's, you know, worth saying or different or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and this last book, Real Love, I think um, when I was doing the audio version of it, I was thinking, oh, this should have been three books. So I'm like, wow. Uh, because you should have split it up? I should have split it up. Three books? Yeah, was but it, I did. Because you were reading the audiobook and it was long? 
it was long and, and tired <laughs> and I was tired and not and, and I also thought oh there's actually a lot more to say about some of these mm. topics and I thought uh oh you know there's the like next one book. yeah that's the next one huh maybe yeah <laughs> so what would you say is the point of your life Oh, I think it's helping people, and I think it's in the sense of, um, you know, uh, it's allowing, it's helping people have more faith in themselves and and faith in uh, their ability. Uh, even like what we talked about earlier, when you said most people have this mistaken notion about meditation, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. You know, I meet person after person who says, oh, I tried that once, I failed at it. Yeah. You know, and I think in a way those are really my people. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Because we don't believe you can fail at it. Most people have misconceptions about what's supposed to happen anyway. And sort of helping clear a path so that people can go on. You know, uh, that just happens to be my particular methodology for growth and transformation. And, you know, there are many, many methodologies, but... Uh, given that that's mine, you know, the one I'm familiar with, I want to help people really trust in themselves and their ability to uh, to learn and to grow and to get more loving and, and to be happier. Wow. Is it... Does it... Is being happy matter? Yeah, I think it matters. I think it's not the ordinary sense of happiness, um, which is just kind of finding things pleasant, you know, and not having any upheaval or whatever, but uh, uh, it's not, th- I think it's a sense of belonging that we all need, and we have a sense of, um, we need a sense of feeling at home somewhere mm. in this body or in this mind or in this, on this earth or with someone. Or uh, I think we all need that because I think without that, uh, we can't help anybody else. We're too exhausted and too depleted and. So it's like I, I define happiness as a kind of inner resource. Um, in Buddhist teaching, they say the best kind of generosity comes from a sense of inner abundance. It doesn't come from how much you have by an external measure, because you might have a ton of whatever, uh, but you don't have the inner feeling that you even have enough. And so it's very hard to give. And you take that away from material generosity to like generosity of the spirit, you know, thanking someone or caring about them or trying to help them or even paying attention to them. It's like you need to have something inside on which you're, from which you're drawing uh, the energy because if you feel exhausted and depleted and shattered and broken, it's very, very hard to care about anybody else. And so I think of happiness as an essential ingredient in being able to connect to others. That is so big what you just said. So big the, that the feeling of enough, having enough, is what we need to be able to give to others. Yeah. So like, if, if, like to take that out of conceptual terms, like someone could have, I saw it in India when I was there, someone could have like nothing, but they feel they have enough and they're able to, like, I would walk down the street and these people that seemed so poor to me were giving me food. Like, please, come That's and right. have, yeah. eat this and drink this. Whereas some people in L.A. may have millions and millions of dollars, but they don't feel they have enough. Mm-hmm. 
And so they're not going to give you anything. And what I'm hearing you say is that's not only true of material things, money or food, but also of compassion and love. Mm -hmm. Like if you don't feel you have enough love, you're not going to give any to anybody else. That's right. That's exactly right. That's what I'm and you know what? saying. I yeah. struggle with that. Mm -hmm. I struggle with that. I'm, I've, heard, I've heard some of your recordings before and lectures where it's like the, I've heard you mention, and I really deal with this, it's like the hardest person to love is me. Yeah. Where I'll be, I'll be like some, consider myself a nice guy, talk mm -hmm. to my friends, and then listen to this inner dialogue. And it's like, I would never speak that way towards anyone yeah. else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... I'll talk about this to people and they'll glorify it. They'll say, oh, well, that's because you're driven and that's how you got to where you are and you're disciplined and you have the fire. And I just think to myself like, well, one, I don't couple, I don't think those things are tangled up, right? I think mm -hmm. you can be skilled at a task and mm -hmm. quote successful end quote while being nice to yourself. I totally mm -hmm. don't think you have to be like the tortured artist to be mm -hmm, a good mm -hmm. artist um but if if you did i wouldn't pick it <laughs> you know i'd yeah, pick like yeah. i'd pick chill and if i could you know if i could choose you know or i'd pick to love myself rather mm -hmm. than be a great artist who hates themselves yeah and what is why do we value being hard on ourselves where's that come from well, I mean, I think that's totally conditioning, you know, like, well, I think the notion of uh, the tortured artist is a very Western concept, you know, it doesn't, it's very different than the East, like, uh, you know, we have maybe some monk worked on a painting for 20 years or something, you know, <laughs> and, or 20 uh, seconds, or 20 seconds, you know, and I heard the Dalai Lama once, he was on a panel, um, he was asked, being asked a lot of questions about art and creativity, and and he kept trying to explain it was different, you know, and in his background and his condition, he said, you know, we believe that the most important thing about, say, a sculpture or a painting is what happened in the mind of the person creating it. Mm. You know, so in those, let's say it took 20 years, you know, did they get kinder? Did they get more enlightened? Did they get more generously said that's what makes it beautiful wow you know it's not some other standard of like looking at it saying wow that's beautiful wow i mean that's that's a lot to think because i'm like i said I'm making an album now yeah yeah and in my head i've had this i have the, this like external standard of what the album needs to be mm-hmm and how beautiful I want it to be when it's done. And if, wow, to, this is blowing my mind sitting on this couch. <laughs> if instead I focused on, am I peaceful? Am I, compa mm -hmm. am I becoming mm -hmm. more loving mm -hmm. while making this album? That's right. It probably would just end up being whatever that external thing is in my head. It probably just would have, like you ended up teaching. Uh -huh. Like yeah, it probably yeah. just would happen on its own. Yeah. But yeah. I get this other gift. Wow, Sharon. Come on, Sharon. Right. <laughs> Woo! 
That was the Dalai Lama, really. I'm just quoting. <laughs> but um, have you met the Dalai Lama? I have. What was that like? Tell us the story. Set the scene. Set the what scene. Country? Uh, I've met him a lot of times. I mean, one of the best stories is when he first came. Uh, actually, it was his first trip to the U.S. He came to Amherst, Massachusetts, which is very close to Barry, Massachusetts, where the Insight Meditation Society is. And we you know, heard he was coming, so we shot off a letter to the private office, and we said, hey, maybe he'd like to visit us too. And then we got a letter back saying, yeah, he's coming. So then we had to prepare for visits. Were you, like, so. expecting them to say yes? No, no. <laughs> I never thought he'd say yes. And okay. In those days, you know, it wasn't quite the sort of intense, intense security that it is now and entourage and all that. But still, we had the center, the retreat center is about two miles outside of the town of Barry on this little country road called Pleasant Street, which we had a blockade. And we had state troopers patrolling the roof with guns. And it was really weird. And uh, just a little bit before his visit, I had been in a car accident and I had a broken bone in my foot and I was using crutches, which I was really klutz with. And so the day came that he was going to come and I was in the back of about 100 people outside waiting for him. And I kept, I felt like so terrible. I thought, oh, I'm stuck in the back and I'm one of the main people who started this place. I should be up front, but I can't be up front. I'm such a klutz. And <laughs> I'll fall on my face right in front of him if I'm up front. That would be even worse. I better stay in the back. But, oh, no, I'm in the back. It's so awful. And, and then uh, his car pulled up, and he did something I've seen him do many times since, but it was like the first time I'd ever seen it, in that he got out of the car, and he seems to have a kind of radar for who in a crowd is suffering the most. And he goes there, and that was me. And he just, like, he got out of the car, and he cut through 100 people, and he came up to me, and he took my hands, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, what happened? Mm. And it was it was almost a defining moment for me of compassion, because I realized he couldn't make the injury not have happened, and he couldn't make me any more skillful in my use of the crutches, but that horrible feeling of being so unseen, so unacknowledged, so stuck in the back. It was like gone. It was way gone. Wow. You know, so I, I kind of redefined compassion like that because so many times we can't make it better. You know, we can't fix it, but we can actually be there in a different way. Well, you, yeah, acknowledge someone else is there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's such a cool story. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. I have some more questions from uh -huh. audience members. And I think I might know the answers to them, but I still want to ask you because uh -huh. you probably know the answers to them better. So one is, do you have to be a Buddhist to meditate? No. Uh, the meditative practices that I do have been sort of preserved and transmitted in, in Buddhist tradition. So that's like languaging that's very comfortable for me, but it's absolutely separate from any kind of belief system or uh, the first night of my first retreat. Because when I went to India, I actually learned meditation in the context of an intensive 10-day retreat. That's how I started. Mm -hmm. And the first night, the teacher was S.N. Goenka, and the first night he said... Is that Vipassana? Yeah, it's Vipassana. Okay. He said, uh, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. And that was my beginning. That was like the foundational statement. And, you know, it still rings true to me today. So it has nothing to do with it, really. You can 
be anything else or nothing, you know. So is Buddhism a religion? I don't think so, honestly, you know, but of course for some people it is, but um, it's meant to be more like a set of, um, well, certainly it's it's uh, these methods, you know, which are available to anybody, and a set of external life practices, like be kind, be generous, and stuff like that. So could you be like a Christian and a Buddhist at the same time? Yeah, I think you can. I'm, you know, more familiar with Jews and Buddhists, <laughs> you know, so we call Jibus, yeah. <laughs> I like that. What was I gonna Oh, I know this question it's a question not from the audience, from me. So when I hear Christians talk about Jesus, I know their historical reference is the Bible. Mm-hmm. Or their reference. I don't know what the historical that's another discussion. What it, when I hear you say in the Buddhist tradition, and then something following that, is there a book like that, or is it several texts? What like what? How how is that? Or is it tri- passed on orally? How is that tradition preserved? Mm-hmm. Uh, for about three or four hundred years after the time of the Buddha, it was totally an oral tradition. Um. It was only written down after that. It was written down on palm leaves, you know, it was before they had books and mm. uh, and these different languages ultimately. So there's the whole, and there are many, many, many books. And so there, um, you know, this whole sections that were written in Pali, um, which is kind of like Sanskrit, but a more colloquial form. And then there's the Sanskrit text, and then as Buddhism moved to different countries, it'd be like the Tibetan text or the Chinese text. Or, but it really began as an oral tradition, which for some people makes it highly suspect. They say, well, how can that you know, be authentic? But I've heard anthropologists actually say an oral tradition tends to be more authentic because everyone invests. It's like you've got to learn. You've got to memorize it because you have to pass it on or it'll be lost. And I realize I look at my own mind now, my own experience, and I realize like, I, I feel like I don't have to learn anything. I think, oh, I'll just Google it again tomorrow. Who cares? You know, like, I don't have to remember it. But, right. you know, if I were really invested and I felt I was responsible for it, um, I do think I would really get it. You know, I would I would make sure that I could pass something on to somebody else. And so um, my own experience has largely been in terms of an oral tradition because I don't speak any of those other languages. Uh-huh. And, you know, I sat with my teachers in India, like, night after night, or in Burma and, or Nepal. And so um, that's a lot of the way that I learned. Do you have a teacher now? I do. I have a Tibetan teacher. He's a young, he's younger than me, anyway. Uh, his name is Sokni Rinpoche, T-S-O-K-N-Y-I. And uh, I sit with him when I can. He lives in Nepal, but he comes here to the States. And so what is that? What's that relationship look like? Do you go there and be with them in the mountains yeah, I mean, somewhere? Like I have this romantic <laughs> Uh Well, he teaches retreats here, you know, so it's more like you go to a retreat center and you register <laughs> and you eat vegetarian food and you're silent. And, Got it. Um, you know, uh, but I've known him, you know, for quite a long time. His father had been one of my teachers. Okay. How... How many teachers would you say you've had? 
I've had a lot of teachers. Um, oh, I've had a lot. Of, I'm like a serial student. Um, and uh, they've been clustered. My early teachers were all either Burmese or had themselves studied in Burma. And my more recent teachers have, have largely been Tibetan. Um, so I've had some significant teachers. Is there a, a relationship between meditation and food? Uh, there can be in both ways. You know, it's like, um, you mean in terms of the quality of one's meditation and the... Yeah. And yeah. Like I was thinking also of, uh, in terms of what one eats and also when one eats in relation uh-huh. to meditate. Well, the the tricky thing in terms of the what is um, what we have from the Buddha, you know, from that that oral tradition and the stories and so on was really addressed to the monastic community who had going out an alms round and, you know, basically begging, you know, like uh, going out with a begging bowl. And he had a lot of um, kind of sociological concerns like, uh, you weren't allowed to just go to the house where you knew there was a good cook, you know, or <laughs> where you knew people were richer so that you'd get better food. It's like you had to take what was offered. So, for example, he he wouldn't let people, his monks and nuns, turn away meat unless um, they had heard, seen, or suspected that the meat, the animal had been killed just for them. Mm. In which case they should turn it away. Otherwise, they should accept what was offered. So what that means for 21st century, you know, life where you go to a supermarket, it's really, it's turning into a very individual kind of personal dilemma and effort to understand for oneself what that kind of thing means. And I know um, how I would interpret that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would, like, if I went to the supermarket, I'd be like, don't buy the meat. Yeah, but if yeah. you went to your friend's house and they were having meat, you could eat it and not waste it. Right, that's right. how I would interpret it. Yeah, and I think many people do, you know. And so, um, you know, in yogic traditions and in, in Hinduism, for example, you know, it's it's much stricter, and, and like when you meditate uh, is much stricter. You know, like meditate in the morning before you've eaten anything. Um, Whereas usually we just say, in all honesty, we say the best time to meditate is when you're actually going to meditate. And if that's first thing in the morning, that's great. And if that's after dinner, it's after dinner, you know. But but the important thing and the hard thing is making it real. It's like actually practicing. Meaning like showing up to do it? Yeah, showing up to do it, you know, rather than... Thinking, wow, it's a great idea. <laughs> I'm laughing because I have a buddy. He's an incredible poet, and he meditates uh-huh. uh, daily. And he'd been keeping track of, like, every he had this app on his phone, and every time he'd meditate, he'd like log it, log the minutes. Uh-huh. And he was very proud of his minutes. And we went on this uh, tr- a river trip, like a uh, rafting trip and we were like totally off the grid Our, none of the phones worked 
um, as far as service, but we mm-hmm. were all like, there were several meditators on the trip and we'd meditate together. It was very sweet. But every time we did, he had to time it on his phone so he could get the credit and the points. Mm-hmm. And I was, with, I was with him two days ago. And he's talking about how his phone updated and the app hasn't updated. So, like, his points have been erased and he's, like, all devastated. And he's oh. going on. I'm like, Adam, you look like you need to meditate right now. Yeah. So sad. <laughs> I know. And he, like, knew how ridiculous it was, too, while he was saying it. But it's, I don't know. Maybe you had to be there. But it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. I have a question from... An audience member, he says, how does a teenager find purpose in life? Um, he said he's seen people in his life commit suicide. Mm-hmm. How do we, and he thinks he knows why they did it. How do we prevent this from happening? And it's a good, good question. Yeah, sorry, I'll let you answer that, and then maybe I can expound on it. Yeah, well, please do. I mean, it is a, it is a great question. It's a really sad, <laughs> obviously, question as well, because um, it can be so prevalent in communities and I mean, I think a lot in society has broken down, you know, the kind of ways we used to come together and the sense of community and, um, you know, the ways, uh, like I love technology and I I really love social media and and for some people the ways it's used are more destructive than constructive and, um, you know, as one professor friend talking about his students, so that kind of age group said to me, you know, no one posts a photo of their mediocre lunch, you know? <laughs> right. And and so people are kind of competing for the perfect experience as all that existed. And, um, you know, so uh, it's all about connection, I think. And so, you know, helping people form a sense of community, whether it's online in a different way or, or in person. And um, the, the person I know in my life, he wasn't a teenager by any means, but uh, who was probably probably suffered from the most significant depression of anybody I knew in my life, got the most fulfillment out of helping others. And when he was really in a bad way, I mean, he needed medication, he needed all kinds of things, you know. Um, but, uh, I mean, way beyond medication, but uh, in, in the midst of that, the thing he would talk about would be um, going and wrapping sandwiches for homebound people or something like that, you know? Wow. And uh, he needed, in addition to everything else he was doing, he needed to kind of get out of his own way, you know, and, and remember the kind of the human community or uh, it could be the animal community, but it's some sense of connection. And so I would, you know, depending on the situation, really try to urge that. So what were you going to say? Yeah. I was going to say, well, I was going to like kind of expand the question, but I think you answered it, which mm-hmm. was, I, I mean, I see this in my friends, but certainly in my audience a lot, who I think is like 18 to 30, mm-hmm. and they're looking for some like sense of fulfillment, mm-hmm. and there's an expectation that it's going to come from work when they find the right work Mm -hmm. quote the right work end quote or quote the one end quote like the partner Mm -hmm. of their life and I'm certainly guilty of this and I can sort of repart 
report. I can report back uh, from the first part of that, which is like at 22, I somehow stumbled into riches and notoriety and attention from the opposite sex, mm-hmm. and I expected fulfillment to like come right along with that, and. What I realized was my experience of life was pretty much the same. It wasn't really worse, but it wasn't really better. And I really, there was a disappointment that went along with that because I expected it to be better. I expected it to be like happier and more fulfilled and like more content, and it wasn't. And that's one of those things that I feel I heard other people tell me. When I was younger, like, money doesn't buy happiness is probably, like, the most popular way to say that. But I didn't really believe it. Mm -hmm. I used to think that people saying that to me just didn't make enough money. And there Uh was a threshold that they didn't get to. And if I got to that threshold, like, I would be happy and jokes on them. Uh Um, But I, like, on the other side of that now, I really (laughs) Like, money really doesn't buy happiness. I don't think it buys unhappiness either, but I don't think it, like, really changes the experience of life. And there's this tendency from us, and I'm, like, I'm in that age group with these people to think that there's there's some magic bullet out there. Like, Uh whether it's a romantic partner or this, like, career that's, like, going to make it all better. Uh What do we do with that? Well, I mean, life usually takes care of that, you know, unfortunately. Meaning, like, unfortunately. well, it's a dangerous thing, right? Cause yeah, Because, yeah. one, it's, like, on a partner that's too much pressure to put on another yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, um, I would, I, I think, myself included, like, we kind of got to let go of that expectation. It seems mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. at least in my experience, that, we spend a lot of time trying to make the circumstances outside of ourselves perfect mm-hmm. in hopes that that will cause some internal change. When in reality, it works the opposite way. Mm-hmm. The only thing we really have control over is you know, doing this, this sort of practice like we did earlier and mm-hmm. relating mm-hmm. to our thoughts differently and changing the internal circumstances, which in turn, I find change the external circumstances. Mm-hmm. And it's like this counterintuitive thing that, w- that you really have to kind of swim up sh- upstream culturally to adopt and live that way. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's also what empowers us. I mean, that's what... In a way, that's what mindfulness was designed for, is because we're taught so many things, and and the only way to really know is to look directly at our experience. You know, like does clinging and like anxiety, you know, like kind of fearful holding on, does that really make us happier? I mean, we're taught if it's if we're doing that and it's not working, cling harder. You know, like hold on tighter. But really, what's the consequence of that? We can take a look and. You know, is is love or compassion really that stupid or lazy? Really, you know, like I hear that a lot about self-compassion. Like, oh, that's just being lazy, and that means you're not holding yourself to any standards of excellence or something like that. But oh, really, fight, you know, I fight with that one. Yeah, time. yeah. I mean, I'm going in, in probably today already. You know, it's uh-huh. like, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, that's okay. But the best thing is to like take a look and 
you know, see for yourself. It's like, oh, you know, when I went off on that binge of self-hatred, you know, did it really serve me? Did I, you know, did I start over again? Did I have any resilience? Did I have any kind of heartfulness to even try again? No, you know, I was exhausted. And and that time that I did, like, forgive myself for not being perfect and I had more compassion for myself and I, look what happened then, you know, I was able to kind of pick up and, and you know, make another effort or make amends or whatever it was, you know, like I had some energy. And um, it's through direct seeing that we can kind of bust all those myths and lies that, that we've been told. And, and that, I think, is really the, you know, going back to your first question, like, what's the purpose of meditation? I think that's the purpose of meditation. Uh, it's not just to get calm or feel more serene or, or peaceful. Although I think those things are great. You know, it's to see much more clearly what's the reality of our experience and what's been governing us and what our alternatives are. I think it's it's such a trip for me to have the same sort of things going on in my life mm-hmm. like being but doing like being a different person doing them. yeah like so I mean it even happened when we meditated earlier mm-hmm. it's like like you can like I can there's been times where I feel totally transformed like I'm still Mike in this body and I'm still like going to the studio today and I'm still making music but I'm a different person doing it now uh-huh, uh-huh. and we have the power I think like when we put actually put these ideas into practice right and there's I do think there's a distinction between understanding the ideas and even being able to talk about them to other people with great clarity there's a distinction between that and then using them to live mm-hmm, like actually mm-hmm. actually trying out like loving myself and mm-hmm. actually doing like I could I could go repeat your words to someone else I'm guilty of that sometimes mm-hmm. and 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 teaching some lesson that I don't live but when actually employed or experimented with right because like you're saying what I'm hearing you saying is like try it for yourself you know mm-hmm. uh it's it's transformative like the, yeah. the, the experience of life is transformed of what of how i feel in the day is is totally different and it's that's that's a real power mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty remarkable i have one last question yeah is, do you believe there is an absolute morality um I believe that there are moral laws in the universe. I don't believe that um, I don't believe in moral relativism. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say there's an absolute morality, What's but moral I think relativism. Moral relativism is is kind of saying that um, everything is contextual. You know, it's like if your culture tells you it's okay to do something, then who's someone from the outside? You know, to come and tell you it's wrong. Okay, um, that you know, all views in a way in a certain context could have some validity. And I don't really go for that. I think, like, I can talk to... The example I keep using is I can talk to somebody forever about whether it's right to kill girl babies, you know, like... Mm -hmm. uh, Because they're girls upon birth, you know? And I say, no, I don't think that's right, you know? Like, um, 
no matter what your culture might teach you or my culture might teach me, you know, I think that when we, you know, this comes right out of my acquaintance with Buddhism, it's like if we act from a place of our motivation is hatred or or greed, it's going to have certain consequences. I think it's just energetic. It's not like judgmental, you know, it's just like saying, do you believe in gravity, you know, and um, it's just energetic. And when our motivation is is kindness or uh, wanting to serve, I think that has certain consequences. And um, But I would also say that the whole essence of morality in Buddhist teaching is not just compassion for someone else, it's compassion for ourselves. Mm. It's like for once in our lives to try to give ourselves a break. You know, it's like if you tell a lot of lies, for example, and then you sit down to meditate to discover the truth, it tends not to be that easy. You know, you sit there and you freak out and like, did I lie to enough people? And maybe I have to tell another lie and where's my phone? And, you know, um, did I lie, you know, loudly enough? Maybe I need to bolster it. And like, we're consumed with all of that. Whereas if, you know, our lives are just kind of more straightforward, uh, then we free up all that energy and we can actually practice. So, um, it's like out of kindness toward ourselves that there's a very beautiful quote from the Buddha where he said, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. Wow. Like, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. Because, first of all, harming another is like harming ourselves. And also, because we're not just capable of mediocrity, we're actually each capable of greatness. And to sort of settle for, you know, the pettiness and triviality of being consumed by, you know, having lied and over and over again, it's like, what a waste. And so we don't have to go there. And so it's not like a weird, repressive, um, self-hating kind of morality. It's very different than that. Is there like a, a list of tenets or like, like when you say the purpose of your life mm-hmm. is to help others, in essence, those aren't the exact words. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a it sounds like there's an assumption that helping others is good mm-hmm. so or maybe not an assumption like what is is are those mm-hmm. sort of things uh spelled out in the mm-hmm. buddhist tradition like is like in christianity there's mm-hmm. in judaism there's the ten commandments yeah is there something like that in buddhism too yeah i mean they're not usually called commandments because the idea is not punitive you know or it's like if you they're called precepts you know this or else that's right you know yeah they're called precepts and they're called training precepts so that we're we're using them in order to cultivate greater awareness and like i've heard you know great great teachers be asked like what do i do like i broke a precept and and they'll say well take it again you know it's not like oh my god you're you know you're doomed um you know, it's like, okay, you know, that, that was a mistake. Now let's start over. It's actually the same thing that we do in the meditation. It's like one lesson, you know, that goes everywhere. What are the precepts? Um, uh, the five precepts for a lay person is not to kill or not. It's to have a reverence for life, um, not to steal or not to take that which is not offered. And, and all of these have more modern interpretations, you know, like, uh, in terms of the environment and, and conservation and so on. So uh, not to commit sexual misconduct, so not to use our sexual energy in a way that's exploitative or harmful to ourselves or to others, um, not to lie or, or to speak harshly 
uh, to use speech, which is very, very powerful, actually, um, as a way of uh, getting closer to the truth and to others rather than more and more alienated. And then not to take intoxicants that cloud the mind or cause heedlessness. So that usually elicits a lot of discussion. Right. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean total abstinence? Does that mean moderation? What the hell does that mean? What does it mean um, for you, the sexual one? The sexual one? And how do you interpret that? Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it could be anything. You know, some people take monastic vows and they, they don't have sexual activity at all, and that's a choice. And other people, um, you know, have a relationship or some combination of relationships. And, uh, but it certainly means no duplicity, you know. What does duplicity mean? Duplicity means lying. Got it. You know, or um, I would say no, no exploitation. You know, in the sense of, um, you know, I mean, it's very hard. You know, in terms of the structures of society and, say, the Buddha's time, which were very, very different. Um, you know, in terms of the role of women and so on. But it, it's very much about not using sexual energy, which is so potent in a way that is harmful and sometimes it's harmful to us um, yeah. as well you know as, as potentially harmful to others so when I say no exploitation I mean no objectification you know if uh, you're in a relationship and you have actually a very different understanding of what that means then that's a problem yeah I, I'm an example of someone right, who hurt others and themselves Mm-hmm. Sexually, I, when I was younger, on the road, I got all this attention from the opposite sex that I felt I hadn't gotten before. Mm-hmm. And so I had this like made up chip on my shoulder. And I would just, I would like totally objectify women and mm-hmm. use them on the road and I'd leave. And. This went on for like years, Sharon, and mm-hmm. what, like, I took a step back at some point, and what I realized was like I couldn't turn this thing off. Yeah, and I was cut off from being able to actually connect mm-hmm. because I had been objectifying so long. And so I know I exploited and hurt other people, but there was also like a, a ramification in my life, which was like yeah. I couldn't get intimate. It took like I still yeah. have to shake off some of those cobwebs. Yeah. Like, yeah. Five years later, you know, and so there, I yeah I I feel that one. I feel there's some wisdom in, in that. Yeah. One. So I hope a listener can not go down that road if they're, if they're <laughs> hearing this. Um, wait, there was one other thing. Mm, I forgot what it was. Something about the precepts. I don't know. Is there Toxic. anything else you want to talk about? I don't know. I mean, this is really it's lovely to talk to you. It has been. Oh, I had some written down here. You write in regards to relationships. In every intimate relationship, there are three elements. <laughs> Us, our loved one, and the space between us. That space is rich with possibility, but can al- but it can also become a battleground or an inhospitable f- no-fly zone. 
Yeah. <laughs> what's the what's that third space? What is that? Is that well, like I think, I, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. So if I'm like so with my partner, is it literally like the space in between us when I'm looking at her? <laughs> it could be. I mean, or is, it's it, like, or is it not really in physical form? Is it more of a spiritual space? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the space of understanding. Of, um, uh, I tell a story. That's a, that passage that you read is from Real Love, and yeah. the, I tell a story in there about um, a friend of mine who. Uh, was she's she's someone who uh, she since died, but she honestly outlived her cancer prognosis by I think like forty years or something. And she said when she first got diagnosed with cancer, um, she looked at everything. She looked at like absolutely every element of her life, and the way she put it was, I used to be the kind of person who'd be sitting in the car with my husband, boiling hot, and the only thing I could bring myself to say was, "Are you warm, dear?" And she said that changed, you know, mm. like she wasn't the kind of person who could express her needs or really describe what she was feeling. And so the space between them was pretty one directional. It's like she took care of him and he had a life, you know. Yeah. And rather than there being kind of a mutual flow, you know, being different at different times or you know, mutually taking care of each other or whatever. And so the space between them had a kind of rigidity and predictability that wasn't that helpful. And as she began confronting lots and lots of elements of her life, um, including its transitoriness, um, that shifted and it became a much more vibrant, real relationship. If we can, if we can feel that sort of love with the whole world or the mm -hmm. microphone, why 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 get mixed up in an intimate relationship? And is that tie into like when people take monastic vows? Is that is that what's going on? Is that relationship? Uh, ideally, that is what's going on. I don't know that. I mean, people, I think, take monastic vows for all kinds of reasons, including it's like a lifestyle choice of simplicity and. Uh, but the goal would be having that sense of connection with all this. But I don't, I don't think of it that I don't think about in absolute terms because I think we have different karma, you know, and we have karma with certain people. And like, people would always ask me when I was in the process of writing the book, I really tried to meet with a lot of groups and, you know, hear um, over social media people's stories about love and, and their insights about love and. Um, you know, people would always say to me, like, you know, I want to be loving, you know, toward everybody, toward, like, the Dalai Lama, but I kind of like my husband. Can I keep him? You know? <laughs> I'd say, yeah, I think you can keep him, you know? It's like, uh, and I never, because I try not to use jargon in writing and, um, you know, like, excessively Buddhist language or something like that, but I never quite found the way I wanted to say it. But basically, I think... We have karma, you know, we have certain kind of karma with different people and we have a, a relationship that will needs to be lived out and sometimes it is, you know, two people in an intimate relationship and that's right, there's nothing wrong with that. Even as hopefully each partner is working toward a 
greater sense of feeling at home and feeling belonging with with the greater world wow what what do you think happens when we die uh personally at this point my belief is that we are reborn i mean i I don't know of course but um i do believe that I i think that uh it doesn't make sense to me anymore that there's just this one life and so I think we die and we're reborn and we die and we're reborn we're reborn it's like one Tibetan Lama said to me it's like shifting apartments you know <laughs> I heard Ram Dass say I love this one so much you may have heard him say he said it's like taking off a tight shoe oh that's nice isn't that nice I mean especially for him you know you think at this point He's lived in that wheelchair for a good long time, and, you know, it's not easy a lot of the time. And he's so full of love, and he's so bright and uh, brilliant. It would be interesting. It would be an interesting moment. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say? How can we follow you? you, Are you on the social medias? I am. Okay. (laughs) Tell us, are you on Twitter, Instagram? on Twitter, Uh, Yeah. Uh, I well, my website is uh, SharonSalzberg.com and Twitter it's at Sharon Salzberg and uh, I think it's at Sharon Salzberg everywhere. Actually, amazing. And is there anything else? So yeah, I would say you're ba- basically we're talking to like these. It's, I mean, there's other people mixed in, but largely it's 18 to 30 year olds. Uh-huh, anything else uh-huh. you want to challenge them or leave with them or invite them? Uh, before we wrap up um well you know i went uh, not really a challenge but i went to india when i was 18 you know so i mean those are the years i think of massive self-discovery and uh you know it's a hard world in a lot of ways for younger people i know but it's also what a time of opportunity you know that that there's so much available and and uh we can form new kinds of communities and really pioneer new ways of being so it's kind of exciting too it is oh one last one i'm sorry I keep it's okay you. it's so fun talking to you yeah. so, so the idea of karma yeah i mean that starts before we're born right there's like yeah. other yeah. lives that that now yeah does that mean like we're exactly where we're supposed to be right now or not I quite. You, Am I missing I think stuff you, up? No, I think you could say that. Um, I think you could say, yeah, we're, we're there's. Uh, it's not meant to be fixed, you know, like that it never changes because it, it does change. You know, it's not like we're stuck. You know, like, but uh, even given that kind of dynamic nature of it, it's like, yeah, this is. There's a. A rightfulness to what's happening in a way not that it's right or feels good or you know that we welcome it all the time is um there's a passage in my book that i didn't write i'm quoting a friend of mine joan halifax who says something like um in looking at the traumas of your life don't like force yourself to think of them as gifts it's it's enough to understand that they're given right they're given this happened you know now how am i going to be with it and so, and, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, so how's my life unfolding? Well, it's happening in this way. You know, there are reasons, who knows why, including past lives maybe. 
why it's this way, you know? So what am I going to do with it is the question. So, like, as I'm sitting here right now talking to this microphone, what my life is, it just is. It's given. And I don't have to think of it as good or bad or a gift or a curse. It just is. Yeah. And so I move from there. Yeah, that's right. That's a lot of freedom in, in that idea right there. Yeah, I think so. Sharon, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been so great. Let's do it again sometime. I would love that. Uh, if you're ever in LA, please let me know. Okay, great. And I'm sh- I'd like go all over doing concerts, so uh-huh. I'm sure we will be in the city, same city at the same time. Well, that's great. I'll definitely look for you. You are the best. Thank you for all the work you do. Your work has has helped my life personally, so I know it's touched others. And I just really want to acknowledge you for being someone when I ask what the point or the purpose of your life, I forget the words I used, uh, you said helping others. And you live that. So thank you. And I acknowledge that. And I hope you have a great day. Thanks so much. Take care. All right, Sharon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.